Welcome to the Safe Haven Podcast. I'm your host, Amanda. The Safe Haven Podcast is a space for you to be real, raw, emotional, vulnerable, hilarious, and or completely carefree. This podcast offers a space for stories to be shared about the lights and darks, highs and lows of life in a judgment-free zone. Join me and my powerful guests as we dive into a variety of conversations and topics. Listen from where you are, as you are. Think, laugh, and cry along with us, whether you're in your car, in your kitchen, chasing your kids, running your business, caregiving for someone you love, getting a mani-pedi, while you're in the hospital, a treatment center, sitting on the deck, on the dock, or out for a run. These weekly stories and messages will hit you right in the heart, fill up your cup, and recharge your spirits. Joining me today is my new friend, Mary. And the more we get into this conversation, the more you will understand about Mary, what Mary does, you know, what what makes her tick and why she does what she does. So I'm not going to give you too much information right now, but Mary, welcome to the Safe Haven Podcast. Well, thank you. And indeed, I love that new friend. Yes. I'm greatly enjoying the conversations we've had up until this point and the one we're engaging in right now. Yeah, I'm quite excited about it. We can definitely start by sharing how we met. Yes. Yeah. Where did we meet? We met at the podcast fair at the Vancouver Public Library. We did. And it is, I believe, the first podcast fair for podcasters of Vancouver. Correct me if I'm wrong, ladies and gentlemen. I'm not going to be famous for (laughs) quoting that exactly. I think you're right. It was a delight. And we, I needed a chair and there was one beside you. There are no mistakes. No. You definitely no. sat down beside me for a reason. Exactly. We both agree on that it heartfelt. Mega. I know. I, we've started to kind of talk about books and about lifestyle and about healing methods yeah. and all kinds of things. And we've really clicked. Yeah. And you guys can't see, but Mary has beautiful pink hair. <laughs> <laughs> but now you have an idea of how awesome Mary is. Mary with pink hair. So Mary... I was super intrigued by you for a variety of reasons. Your energy sitting beside you and we just clicked immediately. I really felt that. But when we exchanged cards towards the end of the the first little workshop that we went to, I read your card out loud and it talks about justice. And so we kind of had a quick conversation and a lot of what you said really intrigued me. Mm -hmm. And I thought, okay, for real, this isn't just a new friend. I'd love to have this woman on my podcast. Thank you. Yes. So what does the word justice mean to you? Well, as you ask me that question, I'm going to answer it on a very personal level. Mm-hmm. And part of that is just I've experienced incredible injustice in my own life because I had no power, absolutely none, zero. So we talk about childhood and children having no power. Uh, and then the events of my life that I've come through were in the 50s and the 60s. So part of my pink hair is that I've also been on the planet for quite a while. <laughs> is uh, makes when I think about justice, I had the privilege of you know working with incredible women across Canada to change our rape laws back in 1985. Um, I was with my father stomping on the flowers at Parliament in Van- in uh, Victoria our parliament buildings in Victoria, in order that women on welfare could receive their welfare checks by mail and not have to work 10, walk 10, 20, 30 miles to receive their welfare check once a month. 
So for me, justice really resonates very deeply on a personal level because of my life experiences personally, and then on a much larger scale in terms of fighting to bring more equal justice to boys and girls, men and women in Canada and around the world. My focus has always been in my own backyard. Yeah. And I know that some of the, the stories that we've talked about, you know, mm -hmm. I've gotten to get to know you, which has been great. And you've shared quite a bit with me. But what I've noticed is that you really tend to keep your cards closed, you know. <laughs> so like meeting you and knowing some small talk, surface level type stuff, yep. you kind of allude to a very heavy past. However, it wasn't something that you just told everybody about. You just didn't. No. So what is it that makes you really guard your story and hold your cards so close? Well, there's a number of things that contribute to that. So the one event that uh, I, you know, I'll reference today is that as a young girl, I was sexually assaulted and molested by Catholic priests. So when that happened to me in the 50s, and it's been incredibly validated by the recent study by the Arch, in, right now in the Archdiocese of Vancouver, but there I was, a little Catholic girl, everything in my society, in my family, uh, everything was to make sure nobody found out. It wasn't just that this was wrong and bad, and but it was like yeah, you had to work really, really hard in the 50s and 60s to make sure nobody ever found out your secrets. So they're loaded up with shame. Uh, they're loaded up with really powerful messages like if you tell I'll kill you if you which are common messages all survivors of childhood sexual abuse experience so having grown with that and moved on you didn't tell the story because of the judgments attached to it so as my life proceeded as is so often the case child surviving childhood sexual abuse leads to other abuses leads to other violence in your life. You don't have boundaries. I didn't have boundaries. I didn't know uh, that being punched in the face was a bad thing. I thought it was something I deserved. And those types of life experiences, I survived with some time in addiction and all that goes with that. For females in addiction, there's all kinds of exploitation that happens to you. And so all of those stories were happening to me in the 60s and 70s. You still didn't tell them. I'll tell you right now, you didn't tell them. Mm -hmm. As my life has gone on and I've had, you know, I've had the opportunity to heal, walk through, and I'm always learning more about how to be more effective in my own life, but mostly how to be more effective as a spokeswoman or a storyteller, if you like, of women's lives, about women's lives, the thing that stays with me in telling my story is that it's something relevant for the person that's listening. Meaning I'm not in therapy here with you today. I'm not out there to be therapeutic with others. But if I'm sitting with you, so the last 15 years of my uh, career before I set out on a new journey in in, as a full-time business owner was working with survivors of human trafficking a lot of them local to Canada. So when those women were in groups and doing their work and learning how to relate effectively, they're looking at a woman who's in her 50s 
um, who kind of looks like a grandma. I mean, they're, they're 20, they're 18, they're 16, they're 15. Make no mistake about it. They were babies through my eyes. I'm a grandma. I'm not a grandma literally, but that's what I look like. My story has no meaning to them whatsoever. So I think it's very, very important in that process that I know who am I in this moment in time. I can be an effective listener regardless of what my story is. I can be an effective listener in that. A lot of the work I did over, over, my, over my lifetime obviously involved recovery. The same thing. I don't, I, I don't have a conversation about that very often. Does it help you who's four minutes and 12 seconds clean or four days and two hours clean for me to say, well, I've been clean 47 years? It, it has no meaning whatsoever, none. And very frightening, very, very frightening if I'm four days clean to hear about this big, long time frame, you know. So I think not talking about my life events and not telling the stories is a combination of those two things. One, I grew up and, and survived and lived when you didn't tell the stories. You made a point of not telling them. With that comes never being believed. So the times I did try to tell my story, trust me, I wasn't on, only was I not believed, I was humiliated and punished in very severe ways for trying to shine a light on some of the things that had happened. And then as time marches on and I become a listener, I'll use that word again, then the relevance of my story is, is got to be very, very sensitive to yours. If you're healing, you're raw, you're brand new, you're vulnerable, you're seeking safety, you're escaping horrific of violence, uh, you're trying to, you know, get out from under all the nonsense that goes with all of that, um, and possibly fighting an addiction, like, what right do I have to babble about my story? It's an old story. So I think all of those things have contributed to me being very cautious mm -hmm about talking it through yeah and I I did the work so the other is my story isn't relevant to who I am I don't negate it when I say that I mean it's not relevant because I've been able to move beyond it and part of what I had to get over in my time was that um, I often when I explored my story my life experiences as I unraveled them as I healed through them as I made changes, I needed to stop being a victim. And that took me a lot of work. Who was the first person to believe you? Who made you feel heard? Well, because of the things that had happened, I uh, ended up in a psychiatric ward on about my third or fourth suicide attempt. And I was in my very early 20s. And who was going to believe me? Again, we're talking the 60s, and I had survived a very horrific event, uh, very, very violent and, and awful. So I was in this hospital and on a locked ward, and a psychiatrist, as I was, and I refused to talk about what had happened. Um, and part of that today I reflect on as part of the work I do today with uh, post-traumatic stress disorder. So I've traumatized and I'm in all of this, this state. 
and I described a little bit of what happened to him as, you know, I kept saying, I, I, I woke up and this, these people were, were hurting me in a very bad way. And he said to me, it sounds like you were drugged that I felt believed when he said those words, because that's exactly what had happened against my will. And it unleashed a tremendous ability for me to start to heal. You believe me, I'm not a dumb, whatever terminology I might have applied to myself at that time, I don't think it bears repeating, but he believed me. Then as time went on through various seasons of healing, um, I was again with someone and, and I needed to dig out another piece of the story because the old story was still controlling me in the present day. And someone said, it doesn't matter that you weren't believed by so-and-so and so-and-so and so-and-so or family or whatever. I believe you. And I think those are very, very significant words for anyone that's overcoming a challenge of having uh, survived childhood suffering. I believe you. I think it's very, very significant for everyone. It has its reasons. I can tell you why I think it's significant, especially for females because for females, there's kind of a you deserved it expectation attached to it. But for males, they've never been allowed to talk. So, you know, for both genders, there's a real power in saying, I believe you. And I probably in the last 10 years of my direct frontline work in the field of helping women get through exploitation and overcoming addictions, homelessness, it was to say, I, I believe you. I, I think yeah, I had some feedback, but I, I believe also when I said I believe you, I was able to really impact because, in fact, I had been there. Mm -hmm. That wasn't part of the dialogue, but to be able to say I, I totally, completely believe you. Well, I think as we had talked about when we had our conversation on Tuesday was you're so approachable, <laughs> but when you when you speak the words that you choose, the way that you speak is that you're adaptable as well. You're able yeah. to adapt to who you're speaking to so that you can kind of meet them on their level and how you're speaking to another person allows them that knowledge, that feedback that yes, she understands or mm -hmm. can be empathetic from a genuine place. Mm -hmm. So that's power in itself. Yeah. Well, thank you for that. And that's just what you said is why I don't tell my story. Mm. I mean, it's way more important to me that you feel believed by me than that I've told you some big story about my life. And I, you know, I beg forgiveness for people that think they need, that have a different calling in life, which is to more, more readily tell their story. But I've been, as I said, guarded on mine. Mm -hmm. I'd love to switch into PTSD mm -hmm. because you've alluded to some pretty horrific stories mm -hmm. um, and, and incidences past. I have heard some of these events and stories and I could not believe them. And afterwards, I meant I, I went home and I was thinking about them over and over again. And I can only imagine how that left you. So dealing with, with PTSD and talking about these stories in a vulnerable way, how do you look after yourself in that way? Yeah, I think, first of all, after we talked the other day, and, and I think for your listeners, just to know we were exploring what would this conversation be yes. like? And because of my guardedness, I was like very cautious. No, I, this isn't what I want the story to be a, you know, that type of thing, which I, yeah. I greatly valued you taking the time to just meet and, and, and have that conversation. Well, so when I left our 
coffee together, I, I was aware that I would, even now, I've said a little piece about surviving sexual abuse with priests. And that, for anyone that has survived such events or other events, being beaten by a spouse or a boyfriend or, or you know, abused by a parent, any number of those, you tell even a bit of that story, something, the trauma can be reactivated in your brain. So I laughed and I started, you know, like saying, oh, you know, I wish I hadn't talked so much and some of the old messages I used to say. And I, I knew it was my brain. So I have great knowledge about PTSD in a very practical way. I had to teach myself. I had to look into it because trust me, the first time I heard about PTSD was very, very interesting. I was attending a seminar. They might have even been at the Vancouver Library because I think it actually was. And some gentlemen had come forward. I, at that time, as a criminologist, was doing work on female offenders and female experience with crime. And they were military, and they were telling their, their stories. And it was just beginning to come to the forefront, this word post-traumatic stress disorder. So I went away and read about it, and I thought, gee, that's my life. These descriptors they used for post-traumatic stress disorder, that, that's mine. That's me. Hey, my brain did that. Hey, this happens to me. I have flashbacks. I don't sleep. I, I pace. This is mine. Um, and that got me greatly intrigued. So I started to study from there. And I, first thing I found out was that in our descriptions of post-traumatic stress disorder, in our dialogue about it, we don't, the very original study on it was, pardon me, the very original treatments is reenactment of the event. And in order to de desensitize to the reenactment of the event, well, which rape, which beating do you ask a woman to desensitize herself to in mm -hmm. her trauma or a child that's suffered repetitive abuse. You don't. So t much time has gone on. There's many, many more tools for PTSD. But in the meantime, I'm educating myself. So the things I've discovered, one, after I've talked about it and looked in it, I'm going to be, it's going to reactivate. It's in my primitive brain. It's in a part of my brain. And it's my brain. It's not my character. So even when I said, oh, I wish I hadn't said so much in my own mind, I could capture it. It was my brain. My brain was triggered into fear-based thinking. I sound incredibly logical at this point, but I got to talk to my brain. I've got to move my brain from the bottom of my skull where the primitive brain is back to the front where my resources are. I've got to be aware that I'm probably going to do some things I do when I'm some of the traumas reinvigorated. I might eat potato chips, but a lot of them. Um, I'll sit like a zombie in front of the TV till it's like 2 o'clock in the morning. So instead of being angry at myself or discouraged or adding other negative labels to myself, say, okay, well, that's all good. This is great. Because one of the things I've learned with my own PTSD and one of the things I, I really work to encourage women around, first, it's not your character. It has nothing to do with your own morality or your values. It's just your brain. And then I really want to simplify for all of us. We can talk to our brain. Because I'm having a conversation with my hand when I close my fist. My brain is talking to the fingers and saying, fingers move and close the fist. <laughs> so I have similar conversations with my brain. And so I'm very kind. In that way, I'm kind to myself. And I... So I... I, I stay alerted to the fact that it's my brain that's on overdrive. So when I, my language to myself, talking to myself, I embrace it. Oh, good for you. My brain's protecting me. So I, 
I'm, I embrace it. Like this is a normal part of living the life, you know, like, okay, there's a little bit of reinvigorated trauma happening here. Let's just embrace it. I'm very, very conscientious to not dig any part out. So if it gives me some information very recently, just in our dialogue around surviving and because of this thing that's been happening in the Archdiocese of Vancouver, all of the conversation around that, um, some information came up and I thought, oh, that's, that's the priest that hurt me. And I'm like, I don't need to know that. Mm-hmm. I don't need to remember it because that's done. It's over. And I don't need to go back into that trauma that I know happened and is over. Mm-hmm. So I'm very patient and caring of myself to, to stop that. Yeah. You and I had that very conversation. Yes. So I don't want to yes. talk about that. No. But not because I don't want to talk about it, but but my trauma doesn't need to be reenacted mm-hmm. there. So I'm very cautious of around those and alerted to them. And then I, I have to, I'll stay on top of myself for a couple of days, just, you know, breathing, walking. I'd love to tell you I'm like a fitness guru that goes out and does her yoga. I don't. <laughs> <laughs> but the other part that's guided me greatly, and I think I've been able to holster it and, and really benefit from it, um, as I've matured in my own life journey. And I have a very, very strong walk with the God of my understanding. And I've made it very, I've been able to very personalize that. I really, really love that term. I said that the other day too. Yeah. How you phrase that. It is so inclusive. Mm -hmm. The God of my understanding. Yeah. And so inviting to continue a conversation about whatever topic. Yeah. Well, I'd like to tell you it comes from a program that's uh, worked by many, many people. That terminology will sound familiar to some. However, for myself, I use it in my my daily walk. The God of my understanding is I do when I'm engaging in a talk about God, who I understand, I want it to be include your God of your understanding or your God or your God. I think that's very, very important. The God of my understanding is a God of love and not of judgment, and not not a God that goes around setting rules, It's except for one, and that's how do we learn to love each other despite our differences. Mm-hmm. So in that journey, I, I have, when I'm in a particularly vulnerable state with my own trauma, I will work through prayer and that, and I, I pray specifically through the Hebrew word of Yeshua, which is Jesus, and that reflects a part of my belief in terms of my my understanding and then how I relate to God. But that word is is a reference to um, healing and comfort, and it I'll say that like a mantra in, into my life as I'm and am able to go to sleep and sleep with a lot of comfort. And sometimes I forget all that, and I toss and turn and grind my teeth like the rest of us on the planet, and then I just do that. So. You know, drink water and breathe. Some real basic things. You see, my brain needs water. That's important. I don't drink nearly enough water. It's a side effect of trauma. Is is uh, some people when we go through because it happened to me when we go through trauma, uh, the thirst button in our brain doesn't work the same as everyone else's, and we'll just stop. Like I have to be very conscientious about putting fluid in my body. But the other part in that is just those cravings that can come up along with it. So 
<laughs> one of those cravings is breathing because you, you start to breathe shallowly through your mouth and then your brain mm -hmm. doesn't get oxygen. So everything mm -hmm. goes back to taking care of my brain. Mm -hmm. And my effort with post-traumatic stress in women's lives is that we can educate each other about this. We do not have to become superstar athletes. And there's, you know, the demands on women's time is such that it's very, very difficult. It's like breathe, drink water, find a spiritual path that works, not a searching one, but one that works for you that you can lean into. Mm-hmm. Was there a time during your healing through PTSD and, you know, you were learning, you were doing a lot of digging in that learning to yes. educate yourself on yeah. how you could best support your own yeah. healing and growth. So was there ever anything that you had pulled away that allowed you to notice significant differences in how you responded to a triggering event or a triggering conversation? Yeah, I gave myself, it's funny, I was at a movie um, with a male friend, the male, him being, <laughs> the fact that he was male was relevant, the movie, and, and unbeknownst to either of us, this really graphic, horrific rape scene came in, and I still didn't have a lot of knowledge, and I needed to throw up, and so I left my seat and went to the washroom and to throw up. Now, I was, now I probably was in my 30s when that happened, and I still had complete unawareness of what was happening um, in terms of that kind of violent response. I thought I had food poisoning. Wow. And um, so anyways, but I couldn't go back into the theater. I could not bring myself to go back into the theater. He was an enlightened man. And as we left, I said, I, you know, he came looking for me because I was gone for so long. And I said, I can't go back in the theater, but I can sit here in the lobby where people are and you can go back and watch the movie. Like It's like, why would I want to watch the movie? That was something that really taught me about, huh, maybe it wasn't food poisoning. And that was what he said. Mm. Maybe it wasn't food poisoning. He said, you left right when all that violence started. So that was one of those times when I started to realize that perhaps there is something that is active within my being. I mean, again, I sound very intellectual and not attached to my feelings, but it was like, huh, maybe. No, but did he know of your past? N probably not. I mean, I was, uh, I mean, maybe he knew about my recovery past, like as in, in overcoming addiction. Mm -hmm. um, but no, because I wasn't in the habit of telling people, right? Like, and I know so many women that will tell you about their recovery past. We, we talk together as, you know, from work we've done in recovery, and you do not talk about being exploited. You do not disclose all of the times you were bought and sold as a survivor. If I may ask, why would you be encouraged to not talk about the times that you were bought and sold with other victims of exploitation? Well, I think we have to go back a little bit again. In, in the world of young women, women of all ages, but girls and young women, when they're being bought and sold, they're being prostituted. And our history, as a, our social history as a North American but worldwide, it's to label that woman a prostitute. So all of the shame, the guilt, and the blame, and the immorality, because we have massive moral judgment on that, goes on to the women, the females. So my work, especially in the last 15 years, has been around teaching that we have to talk about prostituted girls. 
And when we use just that word alone, like the power of language, which I've heard you talk about in a few of your other podcasts, and, and I applaud that. When I say to a young gal, you're not a prostitute, you've been prostituted, there's a shift in her life. I cannot tell you how many times I've seen young women just shift. It shifts everything. Because when I talk about a prostituted girl or prostituted young woman, then people hear it as someone else is doing the buying. Someone else is out there perpetrating the crime. And I realize that for some of your listeners, this, you know, the dialogue on decriminalizing exploitation, et cetera, that is not the conversation I'm having. I'm having the conversation about the emotional impact on women to hear that. One of the things that is in my experience and in my humble opinion, I'm rarely humble about my opinions. <laughs> One of the challenges in our work in some recovery programs has been the absence of allowing women to, when they disclose or do their past work, a lot of their past work or our past work has been around shame and guilt because we were prostituted. And that's not what needs to happen here. When you've been prostituted, you've been victimized. You've been bought and sold. You're a piece that somebody has made money on. You are an item. You are objectified as something that someone else pays for, for their sexual pleasure. And because we still have huge moral judgments on this, whatever way that judgment flows, a woman comes to the front. I've said this many, many times when I've given talks on this, whether it's a smaller group or it's been a very large group. You know, if I introduce myself and I say, you know, I'm going to tell you a little bit about my story and, you know, I was married to someone and they beat me up and, you know, I had a, and I might even describe, you know, I had a cheek bone or a arm broken or something. And I tell a bit of that story. And everybody sits there, their eyes are wide open and they're like, oh, this poor woman. Oh, are you okay? They don't care how old I am or what I look like. So then I stop. I usually turn around and walk away and then I come forward again. I said, oh, I'm going to tell you a little bit about my story. And I introduce myself, you know, I was a prostitute and, you know, blah, 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 meaning, you know, and, and, and this happened to me. Everything shifts. Everything shifts on how I'm viewed. Now I'm viewed through a lens of, oh, I wonder how much she charged. I wonder if she's still working. I wonder, uh, you know, what kind of work she did. There is nothing in there that's empathetic for me as a survivor of some horrific abuses. There's nothing in there that says I was taken advantage of. So in my work, in, in talking about this, you are re-exploited in the most awfulest of ways when you tell the story that you've been prostituted. And I've seen, I, I've worked for years to encourage women not to tell that story because of being re-exploited. You know, I knew a, an incredible woman from Hawaii. She a, was a well, well-known criminology researcher and doing work with female offenders. And one day the story came out that, that she herself had been prostituted as a girl and, and she had, a, you know, she had survived that story. From that point on, when she went out to speak with her, her incredible academic accomplishments, an author, a publisher, really, you know, trying to move uh, the line forward on behalf of female offenders. It was always about her having been prostituted, you know, and that's how the shifts happens. I've also, you know, walked out of those events and been approached by a man. So, you still putting out? No way. Absolutely. Absolutely. It's something you have to get ready for. 
at these events where you're sharing your vulnerable stories yeah. and vulnerability. Absolutely. That's disgusting. Well, I'll tell you, there are a lot of women that can tell you that that's happened to them. And it was something when I worked with women that were overcoming exploitation, we had to be on oh. constant guard of. And when I ran a small charity doing that kind of work and, you know, everybody wants the story at the front of the room, yeah. the sad, long, sad story, because that's what gets the donations. Never once would I have someone that had the story of recovery from their exploitation. No, you don't get that story. You do not get that story. You get to hear about the work we do, but you don't get to meet the gal that, you know, overcame that past because it, it's a label that never leaves a woman. That's it's a labeled accordingly. And right or wrong, it, you know, the, the sexy story sells and that's all anyone is interested in. So, you know, time and again, I, I've heard from, you know, that women will talk about their recovery or they'll talk about, you know, they will contribute to the wellness and healing of the world, talk to kids or young adults to say, you know, but, but you leave out the pieces that have to do with being exploited. Mm-hmm. That first of all, they're very, very, they often involve horrific violence um, along with other aspects of, uh, of that. You've been owned and there's some very practical reasons for not telling, but there's also the, the whole piece of being re-exploited as Do you a think it, it comes down to just a complete lack of education on how horrific this can be? Is that it's just been, people are so undereducated when it comes to what real exploitation of human beings is? Do you think that Completely. an education in that would shift no, I, I perspectives? Think, no, it doesn't. I've been giving this story out for, you know, it's going on 20 years and... and some days I just shake my head. I think we're we're losing the story. We don't want it to be true. I mean, it's very, very sad because for women, if this is true, that there's this amount of exploitation right here in Canada, then who are the men that are buying? They're my brothers, my fathers, my grandfathers. When I talked to women, I said, have you ever had that conversation with your partner or your brother or your father or your grandfather, which is, do you pay for sex? And no, we don't, as women, have those conversations. We're terrified of the answer, part one. And part two is we wouldn't know what to do when the answer comes back as yes. It's not safe for the males in our world to say, yes, as a matter of fact, I've paid for sex. When I've been your girlfriend or as long as I'm your wife, so there's a very, very vulnerable, unsafe conversation because we don't have the tools and the skills between us. We don't know how to have that conversation, female to female or male to male. And certainly our young men are not growing up with that conversation. I mean, I might have asked that question once. I probably did ask it. I probably asked a male adult in my life, a very significant male adult, and I was slapped across my face. And I'm not the only one that will tell you that. And, you know, there was a phrase that I grew up with. Again, we're talking 50s, 60s, and 70s here. I don't want anybody listening to this to think I'm old. (laughs) 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 Going back a few years, it it was a common statement amongst, you know, my mothers and grandmothers. Ah, so he's out having a little good time, you know, so he pays for it now and then. At least he doesn't have a girlfriend. I mean, we got to realize that the look at the nonsense that we accept in today's world that I call exploitation, the buying and selling or manipulation and using of the female body 
for sexual pleasure. And I'm not even passing a judgment here to say if I think it's right or wrong. I think we have no idea the amount of violence that goes hand in hand with that. I mean, who do you want me to talk about? Epstein and his little story? Prince Andrew and his little story? I mean, just take a look at it. But what we don't talk about is the violence that goes on in the background. Look at what happens to women when they tell their story. Even in their 60s, their 50s, their 40s, they step forward and tell their story. I mean, we had the most Kavanaugh in the Supreme Court. Granted, that was in the United States, and granted, it's a different culture and a whole different way of electing judges compared to Canada. Do not take your eye off what happened to the you know university professor, outstanding academic that came forward. Do you want to be that woman? And try being that and being a little girl that doesn't know how to dress right. Or try being that and happen to have a drug addiction. Or try being that woman and give yourself a voice and, you know, have a criminal record. When we began this, I talked about the powerlessness of myself as a child in those eras. It's still there today. It's terrifying. It can be terrifying mm -hmm. to be, you know, centered out with the label. And even research, I, you know, look at research on PTSD in women's lives. So you tell the story, there's the PTSD fallout. You tell the story, there's the judgment fallout. This is for females telling. You tell the story, there's somebody that can prove somehow you're a liar or can prove it's worse than it was. I mean, take your pick. And I'll tell you, you want to run home and put your head under the covers and not tell. And I'm a strong, strong supporter of women and girls not having to tell because not always convinced that the healing is in the telling. The healing is in me believing whatever words you use. I don't need to know all the story to believe you. I need just for you to know I believe you and I know how much more violence and suffering there is behind the story that you can maybe release. There's so much more. But I, we, don't, we don't need to go there um, as a way of healing. We need to believe each other. That's really powerful. Thank you for that. That's a, it helps shift and shape my own perspectives too, having had students in the past that have dealt with mm -hmm. human trafficking. So mm -hmm. I really yeah. appreciate that because I think every, and that's nice that you've pointed out too, for the listeners as well, that no matter what your story is, everyone heals in a different way. Yes. And don't feel like you have to share it. No. No, that's, it doesn't, just sharing your story doesn't mean healing. No. For some it might, for some it might be the complete opposite. Yeah, exactly. And I think one of the things, which is why I hold myself accountable, there's a lot of very, very well-meaning people walking around ready to dig for other people's stories or listen. And, and to be completely transparent, when you and I were talking, that was very significant for me. Mm. Is this a woman that's going to dig for my story as we're just getting to know each other? Because right. I'm not here to be dug into. Nope. You know, I also have had the goodness in my life and the good people in my life. I know where I begin and end. I know what I will and won't say. But there's a lot of people walking around looking to hear other people's stories. It's kind of a vicarious thrill, if I could say that. And, and I think it's sad um, I, I, because the important part is, as I said, I need to know 
that I don't, I'm not a part of your story. You don't need mine. You know, I need to know that I'm there to listen and, and believe you mm-hmm. and, and accept whatever it is that you say. Yeah. I think with young teenagers, the first thing that happens so often is they get a finger wagging. Well, if you hadn't gone out late, if you didn't do drugs, if you didn't smoke cigarettes and, and they get the judgment, they get the labeling, they get the condemnation instead of just saying, yuck, what a mess. I believe you. And maybe they got to go back out and do the same thing the next night and the next night and the next night. They are, after all, owned. And getting away from an organized crime group of pimps causes young women to be murdered. And we totally underestimate how many murders of women there have been based on them trying to escape from exploitation. We don't talk. We don't have that conversation. Speaking of conversations, I really wanted you to be able to share what, I'll call it title, what the title or what the words Relating Effectively means to you. So my book that's coming out is called Relating Effectively. And what that means to me is our ability to talk together, not about anything, but but it's geared to effectively solving problems. So if I relate effectively, whether you're my intimate partner, uh, my sister, my brother, uh, like a sibling or a parent or colleague at work, relating effectively begins with me knowing that I am a whole and complete woman of value and you are a whole and complete woman or man of value. And if we start our conversation there, if we start relating to each other by valuing each other as whole and complete, I'm not going to try and fix you and you're not going to try and fix me. I'm going to come to the conversation valuing who you are as a woman today. You may or may not value me because you may or not may not have read my book. <laughs> but, you know, that may not be in your skill set yet. But it's about us figuring out how can we relate effectively? Where do we want it to go? If we're relating to each other, we're becoming new friends, what do we want that to look like? You know, I need to know how to have a conversation so that I can have a healthy and effective relationship. Not one or the other of us has all the power and all the control. So relating effectively is about all of that. It's about resolving conflict in ways that allows me to be angry but not hurt you physically, uh, be angry and not put you down with words and still be angry. Uh, relating effectively respects that two people might need time before they can come back and talk. One of the things in my book that I teach is a very, very important part of two people relating to each other, regardless of what it is, because I've had this experience when I was a, um, in leadership in my employment, probably call me the boss. You know, sometimes I need or you need just a break, but the important thing is to say things like, I'm not leaving, I'm going to come back and finish this conversation, because people are so afraid, or we're going to come back and finish this conversation, but I'm not firing you. Like, again, knowing who I am in the conversation and doing that. So my book is the pieces of my story, some that we've referenced today, and then what lessons did I learn? Because when you grow up with lots of nonsense in your life, you survive events, your brain tends to go off track once in a while, Um, and mine went off track a lot. I I had a, a big challenge overcoming rage, which is a very significant part of severe PTSD, 
we see men's manifestation of that in sadly pulling out their guns and shooting people. Women manifest it, you know, we exercise it in our behaviors a lot differently. So it was one of my struggles. So as I learned to relate effectively, my book is taking it apart skill by skill by skill. So as I did that, when, for example, when I was in the psychiatric health club, I learned about listening. I'll tell you, I was so mad. I hadn't dealt with my rage. <laughs> I was so mad that I'm in a psych ward getting fixed because that's what those guys are supposed to do. <laughs> and they want me to listen like they get paid to listen to me. <laughs> and the person that was teaching then was teaching me how to respect myself because until I can learn how to listen, Firstly, I'm not going to hear myself ever, but I'm absolutely never going to hear you like listening, truly developing empathy. And without that, I can't get anywhere in having healthy relationships. So that would be, a you know, the tone of it from there. But thank you for asking. Yeah, absolutely. Looking at the time, Mary, we are starting to roll towards the end. But okay. before we get yeah. there, well, thank you so much for oh, all you're of welcome. this. I do have three wrap-up questions that I All really right. like to throw at my guests. Okay. You ready? I'm ready. Number one, what are you most proud of? You know, I, I live a good life, and I'm, I'm going to stumble around with a bit of this. You'll have to edit it. Um, <laughs> I'm just going to leave it. <laughs> I'm proud to have been a mother. Mm -hmm. My son does his work and lives his life, and, and he's good. I'm, I'm proud to have been a mother. I'm proud that I have the privilege of giving back and that I've been able to. And, you know, I still i am here today with that desire at the core of my heart. I'm grateful for all the nonsense and awful things that happened, that in my life it was able to become something that I hope I can makes me a better woman as a listener. Mm -hmm. that's a great answer thank you for that number two what do you want to be known for mm. you know since I was very little my my life has been wanting to make a difference in leaving the world a better place sometimes I say those even as I say those words out now they feel a little um, almost trite but it's really important to me that having lived my life to the to the best that I knew how or know how in the moment I'm living it I live better today than I did 30 years ago because I know more I know differently but that my life had value because I could make a difference in someone else's ability to live better and then they can go on and give more to the world you're definitely a light Mary <laughs> Thank you, you really are that's you and I clicked, like yeah. I said, immediately when yeah. you sat down. I was like, oh, new friend. Yeah. Hello. Okay, yeah. <laughs> I've got one more. Okay. If you were to leave our listeners with a message, what would it be? I want to really speak into the heart of anyone that's listening and just, you deserve to be believed. You know, I've spoken into that quite a bit. And it doesn't matter what the journey is. It doesn't matter how big it was, how awful it was, or through your own definition or your own decision, you might think it's like small or insignificant. It's all very significant. And it and you deserve to be believed. With that, 
I say to every woman listening, you are a whole and complete woman of value, no matter what. No matter the journey or whatever pieces you think are missing, you're a whole and complete woman of value. To the men who are listening, you're a whole and complete man of value, no matter what. No matter what was done, what you did, you're a whole and complete man of value, a whole and complete woman of value. I can appreciate that too. Thank you. You are so sweet and gave me a book that you wrote a chapter in. Yes. And I was just saying to Riley, I said, Oh, you know what? I'm due for a new book. And voila, (laughs) one appeared before my indigo order. So, yeah. (laughs) (laughs) It is called Power, Passion, and Purpose. And it says, Woman of Worth on it. 15 empowered entrepreneurs share success stories with soul. Yes. And you have written a chapter. I have. Can you tell us a little bit about your chapter? You know, my chapter is probably a little more about what we've had our conversation about. Mm -hmm. And a little bit more about how I came to develop the training courses and become the woman I am today in helping in relating effectively. I run courses on that. I do training in that field. And it talks about that. The stories in the book are about women who had events in their life that were probably uh, filled with awfulness and how we took those and turned them into an entrepreneurial uh, opportunity for ourselves. Yeah, And and Women of Worth is uh, a group of women from across North America now that work with, celebrate each other, and largely are authors and co-authors. And it's now the sixth book is being published. So I had the privilege of being an author in the second book. Power, passion, and purpose. Power, passion, and purpose. <laughs> You're exactly. in it, but you I'm don't in know the it. title. I'm in it, yeah, <laughs> yeah, exactly. That's okay. Well, Mary, thank you so, so much from the bottom of my heart. You're welcome. It means a lot. It really does. If you can leave us with your website, I'd love for people to be able to find you. MaryPichette.com. I will link that at the bottom of the podcast note, so it's an easy click. How's that? Yeah, MaryPichette.com. And the books are there that they can buy, and my book that's coming out relating effectively will also be there. Resources for women overcoming PTSD and some of the upcoming seminars and that that I'm doing are all listed there. But mostly I want to be a source of resource and encouragement. You're the best. Thanks. Oh. Oh, you're pretty special <laughs> yourself. Thank you. A lot special. <laughs> so thank, thank you. you for, well, you know, we can just both say thanks to the universe in whatever way, shape, or form that is in people's lives. And we sat down beside each other yeah. at the podcast festival. I know. Yeah. I'll forever be grateful for yeah, that. Yeah, me too. Me too. Thank and you. listeners, thank you to my listeners, big listener. Thank you. Shout out to you. I appreciate you so much. Please make sure that you subscribe rate, review these messages. And if in fact you're interested in supporting the podcast in more ways than just listening, if you go to the safehavenpodcast.podbean.com and look at the top right, there's a little green button there that says become a patron. This is where you can donate as little or as much as you like. However, remember there is no obligation to do this. It's just another way to make sure that this podcast continues, that my equipment is covered so that I can continue chasing these incredible stories. Thank you so much for listening and I'll talk to you next week.